This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. A lot to get through. Uh, Tim and I just talking about uh, Michelle Faye Cortez, who's got this story about the world may never reach herd immunity against COVID. Meantime, New York City's museums and cultural institutions, they're going to require visitors and staff to be vaccinated. We got that from Mayor Bill de Blasio. Uh, and then we've got Pfizer and BioNTech saying they have submitted, Tim, phase one trial data to the uh, US FDA for a third dose of their COVID-19 vaccine. There's a lot still going on here. Yeah, they're showing that a third dose of the vaccine led to higher levels of protective antibodies when given eight to nine months after the original regimen. Let's get right to it with Dr. Tom McGinn, Executive Vice President at Common Spirit Health. Common Spirit Health has 140 hospitals and more than 1,000 care sites across 21 different states. Dr. McGinn, it's, it's great to have you on the show. Give us an update about what you're seeing in, in Common Spirit Health hospitals right now. What's, 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 the, what's the view on the ground? Thanks, Tim, and thanks, Charlotte. Thanks for having us, having me on. Uh, well, the view on the ground is that we are seeing, as no actual, you know, new news to you, is that we're seeing a resurgence in our hospitals in almost every market now. Uh, you know, it was isolated, you know, in some of our regions in the southeast and Texas, but now we're seeing it in the northwest. Our hospitals are reaching, you know, some some real critical moments, but I think we're managing it well. But we're now seeing pockets in California in all of the Southeast, in all of the Texas area, and now we're seeing it in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, we are controlling it, we're managing it, we're, uh, you know, we're a lot more nimble. Uh, we, we have a lot more algorithms and treatments that we can offer folks as they come to the hospital. Uh, this is fundamentally a hospitalization of the unvaccinated. While about 10% are vaccinated, uh, many of those folks are folks with uh, underlying medical conditions and, uh, and things to that effect. So really what we're seeing in the severe cases is a resurgence across the board of the unvaccinated. So let me make sure we have this right, because data is really important here. Ninety percent of the hospitalizations roughly that you're seeing in your hospitals across the country, those are people who have not been vaccinated. Approximately. I mean, it could vary from seven to 15 or seven to 12 percent. But fundamentally, I just say let's for simplicity's sake, let's say 90-10. Okay. Are they younger? Are they older? Who are they? What are the demographics? Well, you know, they are, the hospitalization rates are much higher. It's, it's, the numbers are a little tricky. We're seeing an uptick um, from baseline of the young folks. It's a 30% increase of those getting hospitalized who are young uh, and children. But ever the baseline was very low. So mm. still the vast majority of folks are older. Um, many of them are, you know, with chronic illnesses, the diabetes, the hypertension, all of the things that we learned. Uh, I was uh, in New York for the beginning of this uh, phase of the pandemic and did a lot of work on the early predictors of who would have severe COVID. So it's, that story still plays itself out. What we're seeing is an uptick of hospitalizations among young people, no question. We spoke earlier about the fact that vaccines still aren't available as we go back to school around the country, uh, to people who are under the age of, of 12. What's, what's the best way for those young kids to stay safe, the best way for parents to think about risk factors? And are we seeing different data play out with younger people under the age of 12 who can't be vaccinated? 
So, you know, this is the real challenge. I, I, I heard you speak earlier, and I'm 100% in agreement that we need to get the kids back in the schools. And I'm working with several schools across the country. And I think we need to just good old-fashioned, now what we call old-fashioned uh, methods of mask wearing, social distancing, um, you know, hand washing, all the things that we did uh, early in that pandemic, but having kids in the classroom. I think that, you know, we can get through this if we continue to follow the basic rules of engagement around mask wearing. Uh, that, that really is going to be the key to success as we go back into schools. I think as you and I talked about this, and as a primary care physician, I can see the stress, the anxiety, and all the issues that we're creating by not going back to school. So I really think we all need to just face the facts. Kids are going to need to wear masks if they're unvaccinated, which they are. And we're going to have to do a lot of the same social distancing and, and careful, uh, you know, approach to this as we move into the fall. And I mean, I also just want to mention that this fall and excuse me. Sorry, no, 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 please. Sorry, um, sorry Carol. I no. think that one thing we have to think about and, and I'm preparing for this across common spirit is the sniffles. OK, we are coming in to what will likely be a regular cold season, whether or not the flu. Remember, the flu and the cold are two separate things. We've seen an uptick in RSV virus, which is a specific virus that is a harbinger for common colds. Mm. So we're anticipating a lot of colds and sniffles mixed in with a potential flu, mixed in with a potential COVID. So how do we test for that? How do we carefully you know, manage that situation? It's something we are all preparing for right now. So I just wanted to put that in. the. Think of the child showing up at school with a runny nose, wiping mm. their nose in the middle of the fall. What does that mean? How do we manage that? And that's stuff we're all trying to figure out now. You call it a twindemic or potentially a twindemic season, correct? Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, we, you know, we could see if influenza comes up, we will see that'll be a stress on our hospitals. But I think even beyond flu, I mean, people are very confused. I said, oh, I had a bad flu. What they really mean sometimes is I had a bad cold. And a cold can mask and look a little bit like mild COVID. So how are we going to distinguish that? Um, so we need to really ramp up our testing strategies, particularly in primary care sites, our strategies at our schools, right? you know, all across the country. Do we have the equipment? Do we have the, you know, supplies to do all that? Uh, right. And that's stuff that we're all working on. Hey, sit tight for a second, um, Dr. McGinn. We're going to come back and continue the conversation. I also do wonder if we just put masks on again, Tim. Well, you <laughs> we'll have just many keep companies, it down. You know, you know you what I mean? You have many companies doing it right now. You have many companies saying, wait a second, even if you're fully vaccinated, if you're coming back to work, uh, you have to wear a mask again. Right. And that'll keep hopefully maybe colds down, regular flu down, keep it all down. Yeah. It do, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a small bike shop. I was in one yesterday where they're mm -hmm. requiring employees to be vaccinated and wear masks or yeah. one of the big banks that announced in the last couple of weeks, even if you're vaccinated, wear that mask. All right. We're going to come back to uh, Dr. Tom again. He's executive VP of Physician Enterprise over at Common Spirit Health. We'll continue right here on Bloomberg Radio. Let's get right back to it with Dr. Tom again, Executive Vice President at Common Spirit Health. He joins us on the phone from here in New York. Common Spirit Health operates 140 hospitals and more than 1,000 care sites. This across 21 states. Dr. McGinn, um, I, I want to have a realistic uh, idea of how we're going to be living with COVID for the rest of our lives. Is this, is this something that we get inoculated against each and every year like the flu? And it fades into the background? Yeah, well, you know, I think obviously uh, we will learn, but I do feel that's where we're heading. 
I think that as we increase our vaccination rates, as we look at the variants and we adjust, uh, you know, these vaccines that we will end up learning to live with COVID uh, just as we learn to live with influenza. Uh, but we, we are getting better at this. I, I don't, you know, I think a lot of us can get caught up in, in sort of this is never going to go away, but we are managing it. We are learning more every day. And I think when this surge goes down, we will continue to be prepared for it. And if we need to live with it, we will learn to live with it. Right. As our Cynthia Kuhn wrote uh, for Business Week last week, we talked about it on Friday. It, uh, the vaccine, folks, it works. <laughs> you know, and yeah. we need to be reminded with all of these, you know, worry, worrisome headlines that the vaccine, it actually works. Having said that, um, Dr. McGinn, do we need to be smart? Because as you said, you know, we're going to be dealing with colds and the regular flu and COVID come fall that by wearing a mask, can, uh, mask, excuse me, can we mitigate much of the risk from those three? Well, it was amazing fall last year, wasn't it? Yeah. The fact that we saw almost no flu. I mean, many of us reflect back, wait a minute, I didn't really have a cold last exactly. year. How does that happen? Uh, you know, and I think a lot of it came from the mask wearing, the social distancing. And I think as we go back to school, Again, I, you know, I don't, I'm avoiding the whole discussion of the, you know, political mandate of a mask, but it really will get these kids through a fall season that I guarantee will be complex. And we are preparing for it and we'll manage it. Uh, but I do think the mask will reduce colds, coughs, flus, and COVID. So it'll have, you know, a multiple effects that will be positive. It's hard to think about this as the parent of a two and a half year old, though, as I am, because, uh, you know, he wears a mask for five minutes and, you know, he's been, mm. he's been like chewing on it versus a nine year old who, <laughs> who could totally keep a mask on when, when inside. So, so how do you make sense of that? No, well, first of all, I have to say, you know, children, I have, you know, two girls, they're older now, they're college age. And so that has its own inherent issues. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm amazed as I work with many schools and watch kids walk around Manhattan with their masks on. Now, as you get below, you know, three years old, it gets complicated and you do the best you can. I mean, all we're asking people to do is do the best you can. Don't, you know, this is not, you know, something where we're going to force people to do things. You do the best you can under the circumstances. Try to put the mask on. Try to be socially distant. Try to be smart about it. On our side, on the public health side, on the health system side, you know, we're at Common Spirit dedicated to provide care and test and treat and vaccinate in every community uh, throughout this very diverse country that we live in. And that's our job to figure out how do we test these kids when they have the sniffles? How do we get them easy access to vaccinations when they're available for the young kids, which I hope will be coming sometime late in the fall, maybe early next year. But, you know, you do the best you can with the mask. And all of those efforts mitigate every little thing we do mitigates that spread by a little bit. Right. All of that's helpful when you add it up. Hey, just quickly, 30 seconds. Do you anticipate that in terms of an additional booster for the general public? Does that happen before the end of the year? I do think we're going to see that and come out in a process that we just saw. Some folks who are immunocompromised, I would assume healthcare workers sometime. Soon we start hearing, hey, they were the first ones vaccinated. They're on the front lines. Do we mm-hmm. give them the booster? I think it's going to roll itself out gradually over time. All right. Absolutely. Hey, listen, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And I hope we can uh, get you back real soon. Dr. Tom again, Executive Vice President, Common Spirit Health, on the phone from New York City. Are you going back to some of the stuff that we were doing before we got the vaccine? Um, yes, I am. I'm wearing a mask now in Zors. You know, I was to the point where I would go and pick up food and go to the, I was always wearing the grocery, in the grocery store, I was wearing a mask. But yeah, even around here in the office. Public transportation? Oh yeah. 
I'm still taking public transit, but I'm wearing a mask. Yeah. You have to. Yeah, no, yeah, you, you definitely have to. even if you didn't, to. I would. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So I see it, I hear about it, we know it's happening, that despite some of the slowdowns in an office reopenings because of the Delta variant, there are still, Tim, a lot of us back in the office, and yet, for a certain subset of the workforce, they're clearly staying at home. Justin Fox is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He writes about it in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. You can read it now at Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com slash Business Week. So Justin, who, as people, some reluctantly... Go back to the office. Um, State Street employees, notwithstanding, we should note. Correct. Uh, in New York, I should say. Who's staying home? What, did you, what does the data tell you? Um, it, the, the group that is most stuck at home is um, people in computer and mathematical operations, which is basically software engineers, data analysts, that whole world. And at some level, we know this because it's the Silicon Valley companies, mm-hmm. the tech companies that are sort of being the slowest to come back. But these people aren't just working in tech companies. They're at all different kinds of companies. And it just seems like more than any else, it's as of July, 49% of them reported that they were still working remotely at least part of the time because of the pandemic. But that doesn't reflect people who were already working remotely before the pandemic or you hear a lot about, especially in tech, people getting hired completely remotely now. I don't know if they get asked by the Census Bureau whether they're working at home because of the pandemic. They may say, no, I'm just working at home, dude. Right. That's how I was hired. Hey, Jill Weber's with us, of course, editor of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. And Jill, it is, you know, interesting on a daily basis. We are kind of parsing out what's going on, who's coming back to work, who isn't, who can go back to work, who can't. uh, And love that you guys are highlighting this. Well, when I saw um, uh, Justin's draft, it it reminded me of uh, the ending of Point Break. Uh, (laughs) and, And if you can place that, the the quote is, he's not coming back. And that was totally how I felt oh, about spoiler these alert, roles. Joel. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, you come on. If you haven't watched Point Break by 2021, you haven't lived. Uh, you know, you're just. I, I have exactly yet to you watch that. Oh, you got to see it, Justin. It's yep. a fantastic one. Oh, man. I just want to slap you from here. So, so the, the, the story, well, you need to be in uh, the office, dude. <laughs> it's a virtual slap. Uh, I, I think the story revealed to me, again, that there are um, certain workers and certain career paths that have ended up kind of being able to rise above the freight. So to me, as much as anything, this is a story about this wealth inequality and wealth disparity because obviously these are high-paying jobs, right, Justin? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. And more broadly, you know, white-collar workers have been more able to work remotely than everybody else. But it seems like with this particular group, yes, they're highly paid, but it's also just kind of the way they do their work has, even before the pandemic, been getting increasingly sort of distributed. And lots of times when there's any big sort of software-related project, there are teams all over the world working on it. There's already been a lot of outsourcing to freelance workers all over the place. So it just sort of feels like this is a particular area where, you know, the default going forward may be doing it remotely. Well, I remember talking with the CEO of Mozilla, too, who said, we've been doing this for years. Yeah. Like, this isn't new to us. But increasingly, as every company, we're a high-tech company, we're a media company, but we're a lot more than that, obviously. But each company, um, Justin, often has a huge tech component to it. They've right. got a lot of software engineers, people who are writing code for one reason or another. Pick your industry, pick your company. Yeah, no, it's spread all over the place. I mean, 
the BLS does this annual sort of accounting of where people in every pretty narrow occupation, um, what industries they work in. And so right. I was going through the list for computer and mathematical operations. And I think I found like a masonry construction doesn't have any, um, but bars, there were 50 of them listed huh. as working in the bar industry. It can conclude, you know, like a chain of bars or yeah. something, although there aren't many of those. Shipping liquor to all of us at home during yeah, the exactly. pandemic. <laughs> exactly. So it's, yeah, it's all over the place. And, you know, obviously that will differ by industry. Yeah. Some industries, you know, another oil and gas industry has tons of um, computer and mathematical occupations. It's going to vary by industry how much they stay home, but I just feel like that particular kind of work is going beyond where a lot of the other things mm-hmm. that white collar people do are going. Okay, Justin, help us think through some implications of this. Does it does it mean that companies will save money by having to pay employees who don't live in the Bay Area or in Los Angeles or New York as much money? Does it mean that you know, so-called, and in putting this in, in quotes, in air quotes, second-tier, third-tier cities are going to see some sort of resurgence because you're going to have people moving there because the quality of life is higher. I mean, I, I think what we've seen so far in terms of where people are moving, it's like, yes, more people are moving to Austin and also Phoenix. They're not moving to Cleveland or other, they're not moving to the second tier cities where you actually get a really big jump up in the kind of house you can buy and the quality of life. So it is, I don't think it's going to be some great equalizer. Mm. It's just going to shift the inequality sort of, you know, it's going to make things a lot worse in a few towns in Montana. Mm. Um, <laughs> and then in the rest of the country, it's not going to change things that much. I, I, but I, I think in, again, in the computer and mathematical op- um, occupations, it's also just going to be, and this was, again, already happening, but it's just going to increase the tendency to think globally when you're trying to staff up something. And, and you know, even if companies aren't able to push through that, hey, you have to take less pay if you lived in Bend, Oregon, than if you live in Silicon Valley, they can probably get away with it saying, yes, you take less pay if you live in Ukraine than if you right. live in the U.S., you know, Bend, Oregon, uh, long ago, uh, Justin, at the early days of the pandemic, I, uh, as an Oregonian, I, I woke up one morning and in that like little hazy spot before your brain is fully awake, I, w- I was like, where in the world would I work if I could work anywhere? And Bend, Oregon was the, the spot that popped into my brain in that hazy hour. But uh, I, I also just want to bring up another point that you raise in, in your story here, which is like, you know, one other element of, of this uh, work from home conversation with this particular category of jobs is that jobs here are really scarce in this field, right? Even before the pandemic, this has been some of the most desirable workers and in, in career paths. Yeah, the workers are scarce. The jobs are not scarce. The workers are, exactly. Right. And and so I'm wondering, has, has the, the pandemic actually exacerbated that? Because it's not like the pipeline has been robust and growing, right? Right. And and there hasn't been any, you know, like overall employment is still down something like 4% in the computer and mathematical occupations. It's it's up, but not by a huge amount. But they're they're basically other than really temporarily right at the in the middle of the lockdowns, there was no real decline in employment in the, in that area. And no, definitely no decline overall in, in demand for people to do those kinds of jobs. 
Yeah, and these guys are getting paid well. The median hourly wage for all computer and mathematical occupations of almost $44 in 2020. Computer and information research scientists had the highest median wage at almost $61 an hour. Perhaps unsurprising why you saw a lot of this work outsourced early before the pandemic. Exactly. Good stuff. Thank you so much, Justin. Really Thanks appreciate it. Me. Yeah, you bet. Uh, check out this. It's a column on the back page of the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Joel Weber and Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox in our studio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. What we have to make sure we do as the economy recovers is look at the data kind of broken down a bit. These plants are becoming more and more expensive. You're looking at $15 billion for their entry level. There have been waves of immigration that have faced a lot of resistance. There's a lot of color behind the scenes and a great untold story. How did Bezos really come out on top? As the cover says, Jeff wins. He always seems to win. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the Bloomberg Big Take. Happens to be one of our most read stories, too, on the Bloomberg, because you put anything about taxes in a headline in the Bloomberg story, and it's among the most read, too. And for good reason, because it is a fantastic deep dive into taxing the rich, winning at polls, but falters to fix global housing. Joining us now is Natalie Obiko-Pearson, the Vancouver Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from our Vancouver Bureau. Natalie, uh, take us through globally what's happening with governments trying to uh, disincentivize people from leaving uh, apartments empty sure so what this what we tried to do in this story was we did a deep dive into a couple of cities uh Vancouver and Melbourne that imposed empty homes taxes quite early on so if pe- if property owners left their vi- places empty they had to pay an annual tax and uh the reason this is important is because a few of other cities around the world who are similarly facing affordable housing crunches are look to be potentially following in their footsteps Los Angeles is planning to put a vacant homes tax on the ballot for 2022. Hong Kong officials are considering taxing condo developers to deter them from hoarding new units. Ireland is looking at a couple options, and Barcelona has even gone so far as to uh, threaten to seize landlords' empty apartments. So it's very sort of, you know, of the day. All right. So of the day, does it really make a difference? I mean, if we start doing this, are you telling me that we could knock down those really wealthy homes and then all of a sudden you'd put in lower income housing there? I mean, is, is, is that really... Is this? Are we really getting at the root of the problem, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, it's a great question, and I think a really tricky one. To some degree, you can understand why municipalities do this and when you have an affordable uh, housing crunch to see empty homes just not being used. Is Of course, you know, it's, it's very difficult for residents to mm-hmm. see. But on the other hand, I think, you know, Melbourne and Vancouver provide some early lessons, and I think the takeaway might be they they deal with the symptoms of a housing crisis, but they're not going to, they're, they're no panacea, they are not going to fix it. And um, by that, I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take you through what Vancouver, which was the first municipality in North America to implement a tax like this, has seen. So to some degree, the tax did seem to encourage uh, condo owners, for example, to put their units into the long-term rental supply. So for example, units that might have been on the Airbnb market before have been placed back into long-term rentals. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the, the city has also managed to raise a lot more money than it originally expected. And that's partially because the homes that were left empty were the most expensive homes. Um, and I suppose to some degree that doesn't surprise because somebody who can afford to leave their house empty probably is wealthy to begin with. Those aren't uh, exactly hitting the rental market, right? <laughs> exactly. Like a $13 million mansion is probably not something Wait, that the affordable Wait, $13 million Canadian middle- or U.S.? <laughs> well, we have more matter. than that. <laughs> like, <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so you do manage to raise – Vancouver did manage to actually raise a lot more money than it ever expected, and that has gone towards affordable housing initiatives like building uh, rental housing for lower-income families. Uh, but the vacancy rate in the city is still below 1%. It's been stuck there for years, and rents have continued to rise. Well, you do think about that the wealthy are able to invest in real estate, right? And there are tax, you know, positive tax implications or benefits to them by being able to do so that a lot of other people aren't able to to tap into. So you do wonder about, well, wait a minute, are we are we really using our land and property in the right way, especially when there are so many people who need it? Having said that, things like interest rates, um, policy, housing policies, um, bank access for mortgage. I mean, there's other things that really are at play here that could really move the needle when it comes to fixing some of our global housing problems, right? And I think that's essentially it. I mean, both Melbourne and Vancouver have been seeing an almost unbroken run-up in housing prices for two decades, and that's very much been tied to things like interest rates, uh, you know, strict zoning laws and restrictions that keep supply from being built as quickly as it should be. And so those are the real levers that are that are that you need to sort of work with to 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 cure the housing crisis or at least to alleviate it significantly. I mean, just to put this in perspective, right? Vancouver expected 10,000 properties to be empty in the city in the first three years of the tax. I think about 200 and some were moved back into the rental supply. I mean, that's that's. You know, that's a drop in the bucket in a housing market of 200,000 properties. So, Natalie, just in the last 15 seconds that we have, do based on your reporting, do you anticipate that this type of policy will continue to spread? As you point out, L.A. is planning to put vacant home tax on the ballot for 2022, uh, even though the data show that it's not necessarily working. I think one we think one thing we can say safely is that for policymakers, if it's politically uh, <laughs> popular, then it probably will come in, and it just there is a lot of public support for these types of taxes. So probably yes. All right, we're going to run. Hey, thank you so much, Bloomberg News Vancouver Bureau Chief Natalie Obiko, joining us on the phone in Vancouver, our Vancouver Bureau. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. We're just coming over our peak of the day, uh, but just off our best levels of the day. And we've got another record for the S&P 500. I believe it's the 49th record on the S&P that we've seen in 2021. So we continue that grind higher. Let's get to the drive to the close. Alan Zafrin is back with us, founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital. He's back with us, uh, Tim, on the phone in Foster City, California. So Alan... It seems like the markets, just when you think they're getting a little tired, a little weary, here we are grinding to another record. Carolyn, Tim, ain't it amazing? <laughs> so much capital slosh in the marketplace. Yeah. You can throw COVID, Fed tapering, 
tax hikes, uh, diplomatic missteps potentially or arguably in Afghanistan. Uh, the market nevertheless looks past all that. And I think it's still being driven by Tina. There is no alternative. When bonds and cash yield so little, it's still the cult of equities that's going to prevail. And that is what we are watching. All risk assets go up when conventional safe plays like cash and bonds pay so little and capital continues to flow into places to try and find a higher return on that invested capital. That's the story of this year. Alan, do the high prices, do earnings justify the high prices? I actually think they do. Again, the complication here is people will argue if we just take the S&P 500 index, it's traded about 16 times. It's forward-looking earnings in the last 25 years. And if you look right now, depending on how much you forecast, you know, we're probably trading at about 22 times forward earnings. That's a huge premium. The challenge is twofold. One, we're in a world of much lower interest rates now than we've historically been over the last 25 years. And secondly, the world today at the S&P 500 is comprised of companies that are far less capital intensive and generate higher profit margins. The Exxon Mobil's and AT&T's and General Motors of 25 years ago are now Facebook and Apple and Amazon. And so arguably, a world of better quality, higher profitable businesses in a world of lower interest rates merits a higher than historically average P multiple. Of course, it's art more than science. So we don't know exactly what that right multiple is, but I think it's far less overvalued than what people would try and argue when they make historical comparisons. It is a market that has a scratching our heads. I mean, Dave Wilson just came out with his chart of the day, and he talks about how financials uh, have, you know, turned out to be our best performing group now uh, in terms of our 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500 year to date, which has you scratching your head considering the low rate environment. That is not typically what you see. So, I mean, how do you explain that? Are, are there disconnects or does it all make sense to you? Uh, well, it, it it makes sense. And like, like the world, it makes sense for two reasons. One is you have to look where you started from. Financials were pretty beat up. And financials are basically a leverage bet on economic recovery. So you went from COVID and a disastrous economy to where leveraged businesses like financials would do better out of a recession. And secondly, it's a bit forward looking. You're hopeful that the economy strengthens, interest rates go up a bit, and those financials are probably forecasting implicitly a somewhat, I don't overstate it, but a somewhat more steep yield curve over the next six to 12 months. And hence, financial stocks, I think, are going up in advance of that base case, most likely outcome for the yield curve looking forward. So in anticipation of of a more favorable rate environment. Exactly. Hey, Alan, you you said the acronym TINA, there is no alternative, but but you do think there is some alternative right now, right? For, For where you're putting money. Well, I think there are. I mean, so as an example, I'm just going to talk about REITs. REITs are really stocks, but they're tied to real estate. And, you know, real estate is another form of income generation besides bonds. So it's not that much of a stretch to argue if you're a long-term investor and if you're willing to look aside from short-term price volatility, which I define as months and years, not days or weeks, as one example, REITs, whether it's in a public or a private format, or another form of tax-efficient income that I think if you have enough long enough time frame, the likelihood is it'll generate higher rates of return than conventional bonds. You can make the same analysis 
for individuals who are willing to go far enough to look at privately issued senior floating rate debt. Sounds very complicated, but basically, if you're the senior lender to a company and you have floating rate debt, surprisingly, you can earn without leverage around a 6% return tied to LIBOR typically. And with some leverage, you might even get as much as an 8 or 9% return. Leaves room, although historically there have not been a lot of defaults, it even leaves room for some handfuls of businesses to default on their debt payments and still earn more than what a conventional bond does when an investment-grade bond is paying you 2%. The bar is low. Does that's it, why money's flowing into these different strategies. Well, I'm looking at, to uh, Dow Jones Equity REIT Total Return Index. It's up uh, almost 27% year-to-date, up about 34% yeah. uh, in the past 52 weeks. I That's the one area, the commercial real estate or real estate generally. I am surprised that there hasn't been, uh, Alan, more fallout. Why hasn't there been? Well, twofold. Again, one is I would argue that you certainly do need to be selective about what kinds of real estate you're investing. There's a big difference between industrial warehouses servicing Amazon and UPS and FedEx versus your urban office building where half the building is now vacated or going to be less occupied. So I get that. But but I'd also argue, again, when you only look one year back, those 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 rates were really beaten up. And so some of that has bounced back. And then the other issue is, I think the demise of real estate is actually overstated. Do you? Um, I think you're going to be in a hybrid world. You're going to be in a hybrid world, but you're still going to have even people occupying, businesses occupying offices are still going to need to pay for the rent, even if they're only in there three days a week. I don't think it's an all or none proposition. It's interesting that you say that because just today, and among the most read on the Bloomberg terminal, and we were talking about this earlier, was State Street closing its, uh, abandoning its New York City offices. And look, it's not based in New York, but do you think Mm -hmm. that's an exception rather than the norm moving forward? I think it is an exception because I don't think everybody has the, the capacity to do what State Street has done. I definitely think there's diminished demand to a degree for office space, but to the degree which prices fell uh, overstates the degree on a, on a national basis just with that demise and the diminishment of cash flows will be. So, again, when I'm buying REITs, I'm looking for sustainable dividends. And I suspect even when I have reduced office demand, because that's really where the pressure is, hotels and office there's going to be enough cash flow still remaining to op- more than offset the amount by which prices have fallen. Now, I wouldn't put all my money in there, but when my again, my investment-grade bond is giving me a 2% return and a tax-exempt bond is less than 1%. Right. I can afford a handful of defaults or missteps and still beat those uh, by a comfortable margin. That's right. why the capital is flowing there. That's an interesting way to think about it. Uh, in terms of the equity market, what do you like within the equity space right now? Well, I do actually still think we are in a slower than average grinding economic re- uh, economy. We're going to end up right where we were before COVID. In fact, COVID may even persist this. You have to look at growth. You have mm-hmm. to stick with the businesses that have high quality earnings generation. They can grow in a low economic growth environment. So the cult of growth equities outperforming value stocks, that is likely to persist. And so that's sort of a coded way of saying technology, biotechnology, uh, other businesses that have persistent competitive barriers of entry and real lean business models that are able to sustain earnings growth. That capital will continue to be there. How long does that persist for? Probably until we get through the next recession, because I just don't see how we're going to grow our economy quickly. If anything, the Fed's going to be taking the the 
foot off the pedal, economic growth will again slow down again. The Fed is not going to ramp it up again until you go through another recession cycle. And I don't think that there's a, a, a seven and a recession cycles coming anytime soon. But I think growth stocks will persist outperformance probably for the next couple of years. How much are you starting to think about what comes out of Jackson Hole? And I bring that up because we did see uh, Dow Jones reporting about how Fed officials are nearing agreement to begin scaling back their easy money policies in about three months if the economy recovery continues. It doesn't feel like to me that that's a lot of new messaging because that's – I feel like it's safe to say that that's what the Fed has been saying all along. Jay Powell and others, they're watching the data points in particular. And if things – you know, significantly and substantially improve on an economic basis, well, yeah, they're going to pull off, right? Yeah. No, I, I think about it a lot. And the reason I think about it a lot is uh, I work with a lot of human beings as clients. And no matter how much I argue, be long-term investors, don't time the market. Inevitably, everybody wants an entry point. So inevitably, everybody wants to hold back some cash and wait for the pullback that just does not happen. And so I'm kind of it, this is sound ironic. In a way, I'm hoping the Fed comes out and surprises people and says they're going to taper bond purchases and raise rates more quickly than expect and create this 10% hope for pullback, which will let all of my clients' cash <laughs> magically flow into the stock market at the perfect time. Of course, it probably won't happen. But I think about it constantly because yeah. I sit and think about what's going to cause the correction. And the problem is you and I both know the things that can cause a correction, higher tax rates, uh, Afghanistan, Fed tapering, covid but you and I both know it's what we don't know Correct. that actually happens that will cause the correction. Mm-hmm. So I worry about it. I can't control it, and I, I don't know what it's going to do. I think the Fed's done everything they can to signal their intentions, and now the market will have to digest it as best it can. Hey, Alan, why do you think the market, at least the equity market, hasn't has ignored uh, the spread of the Delta variant? Uh, because I – well, uh, twofold. One is I believe everyone's looking at the charts and thinks our pattern of uh, experience on the Delta variant is going to parallel things that happen like in the U.K., where it looks like if you match what's happened in caseloads here in the U.K., we've already peaked right about now. The market's mm-hmm. already looking past what's already the peak of this variant. There might be another variant to follow. That's part of it. The second thing is I think there's a belief we're not going to shut down the economy again, barring something extraordinary. And so the actual economic impact is a lot less significant than what we experienced back in February and March of 2020. People are adapting. We have better information today. More people are vaccinated. And so I think the belief is there's a much lesser economic hit to the U.S. economy in particular um, than we witnessed a year and a half ago. And so I just don't think I hate to say it this way from a pure stock market perspective. It's not a big enough event to matter. Right. Unless we see a retrenchment in the economy. Like I do think about this, Alan, you know, people can't travel again, just as we were starting to reopen, that's going to have an economic impact. Disney, right? Their second quarter, it was streaming, but it was also the theme parks, which came roaring back in a big way. And that stock just took off uh, on a tear. So if we start to see a retrenchment again, where people aren't traveling so much, Southwest warned about travel. They, I think, are the biggest carrier that goes into Orlando. So there, there are little pieces out there. The Chinese port shut down. They're just little pockets that remind us that Yes, we know how to deal with this, right? We have the playbook that we didn't have a year, year and a half ago. But nonetheless, if I'm not out there going back to store shopping, my husband will be happy. But 
you know, it means that's economic momentum that's not happening. If we're not getting on planes, we're not doing business traveling, we're seeing, you know, the New York Auto Show got canceled. Like, there are big events that would normally attract a lot of people that create some economic momentum that's not happening. Um, That's got to be something, though, that could start to weigh on companies again and impact some of the top and bottom lines and certainly impact some of the economic growth. So I agree with you. Jazz Fest in New Orleans, one of my dearest events, has been canceled as well. I would, I'll tell you this, though. The things you're talking about, travel, uh, leisure, they comprise actually a somewhat smaller portion of the stock market than technology companies and companies that actually can thrive in an environment that's modestly shut down. What COVID has done is it's accelerated the use of technology and productivity in years, in many years, if not decades. And that's part of what we're witnessing. This, we are in the midst of some industrial revolution, which probably started with the Internet way back when, or the, the, even the creation of the semiconductors, depending on how far back you want to measure this. Mm-hmm. COVID has just reaccelerated this process. And what you're seeing is durable, sustainable and accelerated earnings growth as a consequence. What you're describing, Carol, can, in fact, sadly happen. It's going to marginalize, again, restaurant owners. It's going to marginalize travel agents. It's going to marginalize resort hotels. But they don't make up the S&P 500 index. But it is a big part of the economy. It is. It's going to hurt spending in the short run. But like other waves, I hate to say it this way because it's truly a, a humanitarian crisis, but from a pure financial economic perspective... It's a bump in the road, and the road has just accelerated the speed at which the cars can move because of all the productivity enhancements. So if you're going to take a long enough point of view, whatever happens won't be good, but we've actually set ourselves up for faster, more productive, better, more robust, and sustainable economic growth going forward. It's a terrible humanitarian crisis in between, but to get to get to the end game economically, we're going to be in better shape, ironically, to say it this way. Five years forward, it's like Darwinianism. We yep. forced ourselves to be a more productive economy. Right. We listen. We've had tons of conversations with CEOs and other individuals about how the pandemic accelerated trends that you know institutions, companies were going to put in place maybe over the next three to five years, and all of a sudden they're like, "Bam, we got to do it now." And mm-hmm. so you don't go back. There's no going back, and that certainly has no. a, a lasting impact on our world. So, what worries? What, what what keeps you up at night when it comes to investing in investors' portfolios? Well, I actually think uh, the past events of the past week have kind of humiliated humiliated the United States and the country a bit, mm-hmm. and we're perceived maybe as the world's a little less safe for a number of reasons. What's going on in Afghanistan, I actually think, can to some degree impact the legislative agenda of the current administration. It might change the dynamics of the political election a year from now. But I also think you could end up with unintended consequences geopolitically. And things like that have a funny way of creating sentiment overhangs on the stock market. I think we actually are in somewhat of a implicit, tacit uh, war with China and Iran with all the cybersecurity uh, wars back and forth. Things like this are going to come up. I can't tell you when or what or how or why, but that's how you get these intermittent 10% corrections, which are usually just corrections. That right. keeps me up at night. We don't that's get... what keeps me up at night. 
Right, but we haven't had a 5% correction since uh, late last year, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's been a long time. Alan, thank you so much. Uh, we always are grateful when we get some time with you. Alan Safran, he's founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital on the phone from Foster City, California. Uh, a great conversation. You know, always great when Alan joins us. And, and look, Carol, going into today, I thought, hey, this is going to be a day that's actually not a record day. And we look at the S&P 500 and the Dow, they're eking out gains, late day rallies. Exactly. 59th record. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.